Have you ever wondered what it takes to build a successful business in the Australian property industry? Well, you've come to the right place. Welcome to Business and Property Development, a monthly podcast in which industry leaders share their insights and experience with host Harry Karadimus. Hello and welcome to episode three of season two. I had the pleasure of recording this month's episode with Ellie Gescheit, founder and managing director of Navon Planning. Ellie is in the discipline of urban planning and a key consultant in the front end of a development's life cycle. Ellie and I had a great chat about his career journey through both the public and private sectors, leading to his eventual establishment of Navon. We also get into some of the key layers of the New South Wales planning system and his thoughts on various planning topics. Ellie is a wealth of knowledge when it comes to planning issues and strategy, and this is in no small part due to his breadth of experience consulting for both public and private stakeholders. So with that in mind, please enjoy my conversation with Ellie Gescheit. Ellie, welcome to the podcast and thanks for being with me today. No problem. Thanks for inviting me. We've got a uh, couple of key themes that I'm really excited to be talking to you about today. We've got your entrepreneurial journey building Navon Planning, and we also get to dig into some of your insights when it comes to property development in the New South Wales planning system. Before we unpack those two themes, I wanted to ask you a couple of brief questions so we can paint a picture of you for our audience. So if you can tell me, where were you born and where did you grow up? Born and bred in Sydney in the eastern suburbs. Going to school also in the eastern suburbs. Went to Mariah College. And what about post-schooling? Well, I didn't really know what I wanted to do until halfway through year 12. We had to decide or choose, you know, tick a box which subjects we wanted to, or courses we wanted to apply for at uni. So it was only really at that point that I learned and found out about town planning. So you wanted to get into town planning from the beginning of your tertiary education? Well, yeah, I was fortunate enough to, to stick it through and I'm still doing it now. But what in particular drew you to the discipline? Well, I've always had an interest in property. My father was actually a real estate agent around here in Newtown. I remember as a kid growing up walking through old terraces with floorboards that are broken you know, around Newtown, this type of area. And then he would show me places which have been renovated. Moving forward, when I'm deciding, you know, what I want to do at uni, and literally I'm paging through the book of all the courses, and I, and I look at this course, town planning. Never heard of it before. But after reading the description of the course, it was five years. So I thought five years is a really long time. But then I looked at it, and actually halfway through the course in year three, you actually do one year work placement. And I thought, number one, it's you, you get paid a little bit, which was nice. And number two, I thought, hang on, I don't want to be sitting in a room for five years and then realize I don't like it. I was actually able to have one year practical hands-on experience, get dirty and understand what goes on behind town planning. So I managed to, to stick it through and actually had a role with Urbis, which was a real eye-opener because you know, we're talking about 15 years ago or so when I worked there where Urbis was a smaller than what it is now yeah, it's a giant now, isn't and it? i managed to stick around there for about, for about a year and a half so i worked there through uni also i guess that brought you pretty quickly into the, the corporate side of and of town planning what happened after after that well i stuck it out at urbis for a year and a half as a student planner and then finished off my degree but before i left urbis you know i was mentored by quite a few people over there which was very supportive with my ideas for what i wanted to do after i graduated someone there 
guy called Paul Williams, he suggested I have a crack at council after I finish because he said, you have to understand what happens on both sides of the fence. So naturally after uni, I graduated and, and landed a job at uh, Waverley Council. Just before we get into the council side of things, can we have a look at what some of those mentors in Urbis were teaching you or some of the lessons that they, that they taught you while you were there that helped you along the way? Well, you know, having zero experience in the work and office life, you're coming straight out of uni, they taught me how to deal with clients, where to find the zoning of a property. Nowadays, you just type in an address and it's there on the website. Back in those days, their office was in the city and it still is in the city. Just simple things like teaching me where, how to find the zoning of a property. So I literally had to walk over to the Department of Planning building to find these big sheets of zoning maps. I had to find which council it is. Let's say it's City of Sydney. So I had to pull out the zoning map and, okay, there's the site. But then I had to take a copy of the zoning map showing it's zoned B1 or or th- whatever the zoning was at the time, but it had to be a color a photocopy too <laughs> because all the zones are in color. Even like, yeah, from that extreme, you know, the, the practice hands on finding my way around where to look for things in, in the context of a DA, but also, you know, writing reports. A lot of what we do is write reports, so fine tuning that. I think it's amazing to see the progression. We, we take it for granted these days, particularly with finding property information mm-hmm. now there's the planning portal. But you know, even 15 years ago, it's hard to imagine that you were needing to look at it on paper. Yeah, well, it would take, I don't know, maybe up to an hour to walk there, find the map, just to find the zoning. A simple thing where you, now you can do it in five seconds. No, it's five seconds, that's right. Getting back to Waverley Council, you started in on the corporate side and then went into a government agency. What was that like? Well, they threw me in the deep end. They actually threw me at the, the front counter as the duty planner. I was there for a good few years. And that was what, an incredible way to learn from the bottom because people threw questions at me. So, and also, obviously, I had to excel in, in your customer service in, a, in the context of council where you have disgruntled neighbours complaining about DAs or you had questions about how do I interpret this LEP or this DCP control? So it really taught me how to navigate planning systems and specifically with Waverley Council's controls. And it was almost like in the interview that I had with Waverley for the job, they explained it to me. It's like triaging. In a hospital, you triage, you have all these people coming to you and different problems, and then you prioritise um, whoever's you know worst injured. On the flip side, in the context of council too, it's triaging inquiries. Someone's lodging a DA, had to go through all the documentation to make sure everything's right. If there was something missing, I sent them back. Frustrating as it is, being on the other side of the county, I know very well. It's frustrating when your DA gets knocked back or rejected at the counter. I always found it sort of to be a hard job, I think, being on the other side of the counter. I think you've got to grow a thick skin pretty quick. You, know, oh, you get a lot of response with that. Yeah, you have to have thick skin for that type of job because... To be honest, no one really looks at a public servant favorably. There's a lot of people in councils that don't understand customer service. When I used to return people's calls, they'd be like, oh, they were surprised. Thanks for returning my call. Like, as you would know too, you try call a council for an update on your DA or just have a question about a DCP, whatever, you won't get a, chances are you won't get a return call. So when I was like doing the normal thing, returning people's calls or returning emails, they were like, wow, this is great customer service. <laughs> It's actually funny. I I had that very experience just last week where admittedly it did take a few days to get a return call, but I almost didn't pick it up because I didn't recognize the number for starters. And (laughs) 
<laughs> when I heard when I heard them saying, "Oh, you know, we're from town planning and the traffic department," I was like, "Oh, wow, this mm. is yeah, like it was actually fantastic to be able to talk to someone in council at the back end." So, yeah, 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 especially now with COVID, where most of them are working from home, they're a lot more inclined to reply by email. I find that an extraordinarily difficult way to, of working. I mean, it's so much quicker just to be able to talk something through. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, yes and no. Yeah. I prefer. Sending a quick email, a one-minute email, for example, than having a 10-minute conversation with council. But at the same time, you can get a lot more information out of somebody on the phone. Beyond the front desk, where uh, did you end up getting into the back end or what, uh, what sort they of threw me, They threw me a few DAs while mm-hmm. I was at Waverley, not too many. I think they were short staff, so they kept me there for a good few years at the front counter. I would have liked to have gone a lot quicker into assessing DAs, but I guess it didn't have that opportunity. But I still learned a lot about customer service, about how councils operate, and I still use that, that experience today. After some time, I was in touch with another town planner who I knew, who worked close by to the Waverley Council office, a guy called Michael Newstein. So he, uh, he headhunted me because he knew I was looking for something different. So I went back into private practice. Uh, we learned a lot from him. We were involved with at least two large projects. One was a $70 million aged care facility and another one was two residential towers in Gladesville. So we got involved with quite nice work. A different scale, I guess, to Urbis also. I finished up with him and then went, went back into council, back to, to Hurstville. Uh, was, yeah, my, so my last, I guess, real job before I started Navon was for Hurstville Council. From the point of view of establishing Navon Planning, what was the tipping point that you sort of decided, well, I don't want to work for somebody else. I also don't want to be in, on the government side. What happened? What triggered the well, decision? Well, yeah, like as I said, uh, in the conversation I had with people at Urbis, they said, you know, have a go at council, you know, see what goes on behind the scenes. But my intentions was never really to, to stick with a council job. Having a, a young family, I couldn't just pack away and you know, start my own practice. So what I did was actually moonlighted for about a year. So I had a full-time job in the daytime, plant council work, but at night when everyone was sleeping, I was, you know, you know, writing up reports or responding to emails for clients. Uh, and this was all above board. Council knew about it. I had to get their permission. I guess the main caveat was I don't do any, I don't lodge any DAs in Hurstville because naturally if I was to lodge and then, hey, I would like, receive it, like I'd be approving my own DA. So there'd be obviously a, a conflict of interest there. But for, for a year, I built up Navon. I was mainly doing small stuff. I was even focusing on retail DAs just because I knew they were very, you could progress them quite quickly and not much work involved. But at least that way I was able to build up a rapport of clients, architects, building up my own network. And so I reached, I built it up to the point, as I said, for about a year where I I'd grown it so substantially that I couldn't do both. And that was kind of the idea. So, and I think at one point, Hurstville were offering me a, a different, um, a more full-time type of a job or as a planning assess, uh, assessing officer with a car and all the bells and whistles. And I said to them, listen, I don't want to lead you on anymore. It's probably a good time for me to leave. And now that you're very well established seven years in, um, what kind of projects are you looking at these days? Predominantly uh, residential. So I tell people um, small to medium size projects. You know, you go to an urban small to medium is like, 50-storey tower, you know, for me, I'm not doing 50-storey towers. I'm doing more boutique projects, so from car spaces to apartments and everything in between. New homes, especially with COVID, new homes and dual locks has been very popular for Navon. On the commercial side, I'm doing a lot of childcare centres. I don't really do fit-outs and things like that because 
you can do that often as a CDC through a private certifier. So you don't need it, as you know, you don't need a town planner or a DA. So the bread and butter is, I would say, residential projects. In terms of who helped you with the, the, the business aspect side of things, did you know much about how to run a business? Uh, zero. Zero? <laughs> zero. Like you can, you can be a fantastic architect or town planner or an engineer, but you can be absolutely rubbish at running a business or making sure invoices are sent out. Your website is uh, looking fresh. But I had you know, my father to help me out start up and making sure I was, you know, budgeting properly. And from that point of view, that's helped me drive the business as well as the, the funnel and the leads for, for new projects. So that's certainly helped, as I said. The other, um, I've had uh, two business mentors over the last seven years. The last, the latest business mentor, I've been working with him for over a year. He's actually based in Melbourne. His name's Ross Clark. And he came, I found him by accident uh, through LinkedIn. He connected with me and he asked me if I knew any architects that wanted to sell their business. And I said, well, actually, I don't. And then I looked at his profile and saw he's been an architect for 40 years or something, but now he's mentoring businesses. And I thought, hang on, this would actually be quite a good relationship. So I reached out to him and said, do you do mentoring for uh, templates? He's like, yeah, great. So he said, so yeah, we've been working for the last year or so, which has helped guide me with the business and difficult. There's always difficult decisions in, in running a business. It's effectively a full-time job running a business and that doesn't take into account actually meeting clients and talking to councils things like that so it's really helped me um, direct the business to where I want it to go and it's grown substantially in the last seven years so those two mentors have helped me through the process and I couldn't do it without them but at the same time I've made many mistakes like most business owners have have done and I've tried to not make the same mistakes twice would you say it's an essential to have a a business mentor in that regard i would say so plus you know I, I read a lot of books a lot of like business related books you know that, that that brings you up to a point okay well i've got a dilemma now how do i i'm not going to learn by reading a book or a marketing book about marketing okay i'll use that so i've always yeah i'm always forever learning well let's segue into some of the industry insights that you've gained over 15 plus years isn't it so i think the first thing would be to understand the stack of planning levels and how that relates to how an individual property development might slot within those various layers. So can we start with the very top? We start at the state level. What do you normally have in that regard? Yeah, there's three, I guess, layers to planning as far as the legislation is concerned. There is the state planning policies. So you have things like BASICs, energy efficiency for buildings. You have, there's now a SEP housing, which applies to boarding houses. You have a, a state policy for apartments and state policies for childcare centres. So those are the overarching policies. Then you have the, uh, which applies to most projects across Sydney. Then you have, you also have like an, the Aerotropolis SEP too, that applies to the, the airport, Western Sydney airport and surrounding areas. There's a lot of state policies that you should be aware of. And then the next layer is the local environmental plans, the LEPs, specific zoning controls, height, floor space and heritage controls like that. Uh, as you would know, though, since council merged about or amalgamated five years ago or so, the councils are fine tuning their LEPs. So instead of having two or three LEPs in the one particular council, like in a West council, we'll have three LEPs. All councils are kind of merging them into one. So it'll be called the Inner West LEP or recently the Bayside Council merged their LEP. So instead of Botany and Rockdale, it's Bayside. 
And then you drill down to the next layer, which is the development control plans, where you've got more detailed controls about setbacks of houses, landscaping, private open space, you know, details like that. So they're the three layers that you need to be aware of uh, when you're doing any DA. And in terms of the way that they interpret how a development might sit, I take it the SEP is more sort of top down in that it doesn't actually get into specifics, but it guides Correct. overarching. Whereas yep. At the DCP level, it becomes much more, I guess, prescriptive in that regard. We want things of certain dimensions. We want things of certain heights. We want Mm -hmm. things of certain offsets. About the state of play in in New South Wales, there's been a a fair bit of change in the last few years. So from your point of view, what do you see as being some of the big ones that have started coming about? Well, Well, putting COVID aside, you have lodging DAs online. So you've got the planning portal. So as I was saying before, the good old days, you'd rock up to your to the front counter with your set of plans and reports and you're kind of hoping that the council office is going to accept it and you'll lodge it. So even before COVID, the, the wheels were in motion for lodging DAs electronically. So that, I think, has certainly improved the system. Uh, there's a lot of people saying, well, I get my DA rejected all the time because I'm missing a report or the filing is incorrect. Like that... I have the same problems too with the DAs that we submit, but I think there's been a positive impact on the system. Councils are able to um, weed out dodgy DAs that's missing critical information, which ultimately saves you as you're the applicant or your client or the developer a bit of time down the track. So they're doing that quality control check, which are, which is is very helpful to councils. Sometimes it's it's annoying, like oh, you know, they're asking for me this or that. Often. I think you have to lodge your DA probably at least twice to get it over the line through the planning portal. So that that's, I think, improved the, the planning system. The other thing is, I would say, the adoption of the, the planning panels over the last couple of years, where the, the more contentious DAs go to those panels, whereas I'd say 95% of DAs are assessed by the council officers. But, but the thing is, over time, we were talking about the state planning policies. The government and councils, they keep refining that and changing it, changing the word, the, the numbers and the, where it's going. So it has become a lot quite complicated to the point that at the end of last year, the, I think Rob Stokes w- was pushing for, cha- for example, changes to the ADG, the guideline for apartments, which you know, some people were saying that was positive there was also the urban design set critiquing design a lot more more of an emphasis for architects to, to kind of express their creativity was that um, the design in place yeah set? that's yeah. right so that was scrapped about a month ago a month ago by, by the by anthony roberts who's mm-hmm. now the new planning minister he was a planning minister before rob stokes why did you know they spent i don't know two years putting this policy together and then it all of a sudden scrapped so as a planner, as a, as a consultant too, especially in the property industry, you have to be aware of all these changes going on because it can really affect your project. I've also noticed, I'm not sure if it's it's been recent for me in that I've just noticed some of the articles coming out, but um, quite a bit of tension between state level planning policies, which are now going to be dictating the way land use is governed or determined and the amount of power that council have to determine how much development goes on in their in their backyards actually it was funny i read an article that you posted on linkedin which was a sydney morning herald i think it was a campsy residence and the yeah. and the mayor railing against overdevelopment on the flip side i read an article by uh, mills oakley partner aaron Gaddigal yeah about, I read that too. about the housing targets that's right housing targets yeah. and state governments now setting those targets mm-hmm. and so 
seems like this real disconnect between two layers of planning and how do you see mm. that sort of well pandemic? well yeah the, the common approach to is councils councillors are saying our council's full well our council recently said some of their councils even the mayor possibly our council's full we can't fit anybody in else in that, that's crap there's lots of place to, to fit more people and it's a desirable place to live so why can't you fulfill your housing targets Right. I remember also maybe 10 years ago, so Karingai Council was complaining too that they they had their housing targets. Like these targets are not really, they're, they're a nice number and I don't think they've been really, there's no KPIs, you know, there's no one really overseeing if councils meet those targets or not. And if they don't, what's going to happen? <laughs> Karingai Council were upset because they were allocated, I don't know, let's say 5,000 new dwellings. But Meriton had come in and built a lot, all of these apartments and a council had approved them too. The target was within 10 years or something, but the council said, uh, we, we've reached that target within five years. <laughs> you know, we're full. You know? like it, it's kind of an arbitrary number. They might be full, but there's still you know, places to go. You can have a granny flat, you, know, you can be more creative with, with houses and apartments. So it, it is real, it's a, it's a real dilemma because the councils too want to satisfy the, the local constituents so you know why on earth is council approving a block of apartments down the road yeah there is a real conflict and i don't know how it's going to be resolved one of the things that has improved things as i said before was the introduction of pl local planning panels which stripped away the decision making process for councillors which makes sense because councillors getting involved with DAs is politi politically charged. Uh, whereas now, or the last I don't know, four or five years, for more contentious projects, it's being decided by professional planners, architects, designers, landscape architects, and, and more often than not, like ex-commissioners of the Land Environment Courts. It's a real quality panel that's interrogating and scrutinizing and making a decision on your, your DA. I think it's a more robust system. But yeah, there is a real disconnect within, also because there's been a, a real drive by the state government to have more of a focus of strategic planning than, DA, than statutory planning, than, than D, you know, the DA's coming in and out, whereas the, the, there's always been an approach where we want, like this area is, is marked for houses of this particular size. You know, you can build a house there with not too many um, too many um, issues, and that's why they introduced also the, the housing code to allow and, and medium density code to to, to allow um, you to build houses without through a certifier and as well as dual occupancies and things like that. So, oh, yeah. like the missing middle sort of yeah yeah, yeah, yeah that's so, right. Yeah. I'm guessing that that sort of housing set would improve the supply of of housing of various typologies as that, well. That, that's the intention. Mm. Yeah, definitely. And I've had projects where. It was originally a DA, and then we kind of switched to a CDC because it's much quicker and easier. You're not waiting. You're not going to wait 12 months for council to make a decision on a dual occupancy. Do it. CDC might be a bit smaller. Get it approved and built pretty quickly. In terms of actually, for people that aren't quite familiar with them planning panels so you mentioned it's when when you get a certain amount of objections it becomes a contentious project and then it goes into a separate pathway for yep. approval or refusal and you mentioned what do you normally get in terms of the people that are invited to become part of the panel so there's a few other triggers too it's not just 10 or more objections also if it's 10 percent or more over fsr or height if it's a block of apartments it goes to a panel if it's heritage listed also goes to a panel so there's a few other ways it makes its way to a planning panel mm -hmm. but the the question was around who 
joins these panels. That's right. Yeah. I think every couple of years, council puts out like a tender or an expression of interest for anyone that wants to join the panel. It usually comprises four people. The three people are professionals in the industry. The fourth person is usually like a, a local representative. More often than not, with a bit of background in property or planning or architecture. And it's, as I said, it's quite a, a robust system and it, I find it, it's working. As I said, 95% of DAs, maybe more, actually don't go through that pathway. And remember, that pathway takes longer. So they have their meetings every month. If your DAs, I have one, I think in, in a West Council, they said it's going to go to the June or July panel meeting. And this was about over a month ago. So you kind of got to wait in line for your DA to, to make it to that meeting. And then the decision is, is made based on a, a vote for... Yeah, so, so for you, for people that don't know, the process is the, the council officer, town planner allocated to your DA will, will review the DA and they'll actually write up a report. So that report goes through what complies and what doesn't and ultimately their recommendation, approval or refusal. So they, they take that report up to a planning panel meeting. The panel makes the final decision. Generally, I tell people, if, you, if you're going in with a recommendation for refusal, chances are it's going to get refused because at the meeting, you only really have three minutes to talk. So it's very hard to turn around the decision within three minutes. But if it's going in for recommendation for approval, then you've got a pretty good chance of getting it approved. So you can have a project which is looked upon favorably, but might have external uh, issues associated with it, which bring it into sure. planning panel. And, and you have the neighbors too. The neighbors can attend the meeting. Obviously it's all on Zoom now for the last two years or so. So the neighbors can also talk and say, you know, you're blocking at my view of the opera house and all this. And certainly that can sway the mark the mind of the panel too so it's quite risky in terms of i guess some of the more exciting things that are coming about in the development of sydney what would you say would you say some of those are well it's infrastructure it's an infrastructure boom you drive around sydney metro there's lots of roads coming through and tunnels and things like that it's really exciting also if you drive further out to like the northwest and southwest growth centers where new homes and suburbs are being built. A lot of infrastructure going on out there too. There's Sydney Airport, the Aerotropolis precinct. It's really exciting. And us also too, especially with COVID, you have a lot of nice new office buildings being built in the city. You don't know if actually, people are going to use them or not. There's a bit of uncertainty there. Yeah, it's actually quite interesting given the amount of activity going yeah. on there. Almost every city block has something going on, whether it's the metro or a different commercial building going up. Yeah, well, people have to work somewhere. They have to live somewhere. And I think you know, you've got the elections, federal elections coming up too. There's a lot of money being splashed by the government around Sydney and regional areas too, which is, you know, people have got to live somewhere. If the government is opening, rezoning land Western Sydney, they need to be able to drive in or drive drive out to work or catch public transport and it's kind of a bit pointless rezoning areas where there's no infrastructure. And let's get into some of the nitty gritty of development projects. In terms of where you would add the most value to a development project, where would you say that sits? Well, with every project I put my council hat on, as we spoke about before, I've had a lot of experience in local councils. Naturally, with every project I look at, I, I put my council hat on and think about all the issues that's going to come up. So if this DA was on my desk, what would I have issues with? You know, I do the same thing with all my projects. So we look at the plans saying, is there enough detail on the plans or not? Sometimes it's better to provide less details in certain circumstances. Because the, naturally, the more questions the council is going to ask, the longer it's going to take and the more hassles for your client. So the council might be asking 20 questions, 
but we try to reduce them to maybe five or ten you know so that it can be they can be moved um, comfortably so I, I like to think of myself as being able to add that to the project that I mean not always other consultants will see oh there's red flags here you know how do we address it and oh you know councils are it's really difficult to hide things from them, especially now where you're providing so much plans and documents and reports and details on the plans, this calculation, that dimension. It's very hard for council to miss things. And I think that's part of the reason why DAs take so long, because thanks to technology where you can put these great shadow diagrams and 3D images, councils can understand plans a lot better than they did before, as well as the neighbours can interrogate the plans or a DA a lot more too, where it, so that so that that is certainly uh, where I can add value to a project. That's the front end pre DA. I've noticed a couple of fair few instances where the design gets done and planning comes in a little bit after the issues are highlighted once there's a fair chunk of work that's been done it's almost like post-rationalizing in some way the preferences yeah preferences to get involved with a project early on and i advise all my clients and architects i work with it it's not just that's because not just because i want more work it's because if i don't get involved with that the project up front there's going to be problems down the track and if a DA come, if a set of plans come to me to say, Ellie, you want to lodge next week? And I'll see, well, there's all these red flags. It's over FSR or whatever. Sometimes it's too late. You know, they've already told the client, yeah, we're going, these are the plans. It's locked in, ready to go. My wife, when I used to work at Waverley, my, as I was saying before, I used to give advice to people over the front counter. My wife used to call me the, uh, the dream crasher. <laughs> people used to say, oh, I want to put in a car space or I want to build this. I would say, well, no. Yeah. <laughs> what is that? I'd be more polite. I'd say, well, these are the issues. So at the same time here, you you need to be practical. Not, not every DA, even even if the DA complies 100% with the planning controls, there might be an issue about a tree or the neighbour might be losing a view or neighbours are concerned about privacy. So there's always some fiddly bits going on with the DA that that are hard to predict but I do try to predict as much as possible what the issues are going to be and I'm pretty upfront with the clients because if I've missed something if I've missed uh, the design is one square meter over the floor space it's going to be on me I've had before actually a council I think it was Inner West Council pick up on a DA where plans were over FSR by like 1.8 square meters I mean, very precise. I'm like, they're really looking at the plan. And they're not using the same software as the architect. I presume it's not as advanced, accurate. But I'm like, wow, that's good on you. Yeah. <laughs> like, we did something wrong. <laughs> In a way, it's like, thank you for showing that to yeah. us. But at the same time, that, that just gives you a sense for how closely councils are looking at DAs. And I would do the same thing too. If I was working, and when I was working at councils, I wouldn't rely on the, on the architect's calculations or dimensions. You've got to do it yourself because... As you know, sometimes, you know, the survey might be incorrect or the plans are not showing the full details that they should. So there's always that. that you've always got those checks and balances that council's doing. So you're those. adding another set of eyes. Yeah, before it, you have before to. In as well. And in terms of what that means for the kinds of clients that you've been helping, the DAs tend yep. to go through reasonably easily. And Oh, not yeah. always. <laughs> I love to say yeah, every day has yeah. been smooth. I've had a hundred percent track record, but I haven't had a hundred percent track record. And if anyone tells me they have, I'll I'll be like, well, what's going on? Something's wrong here. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, DA, I try to make the I guess advocate and assist the clients that the DA process is as smoothly as possible. It's not always the easiest thing to no. say that you can't do something either yeah. because it's not something that clients want to hear if they have it 
in their mind that that's what they want to do. Yeah, that's true. But it depends too who the client is. If it's a mum and dad building their dream home, then for sure they're going to worry about where's the kitchen going and is there enough wardrobe space and all in the bedrooms, things like that, like that level of detail. Or it might be a client, which I have quite a few of them that are developers, and it might be a house where they're just going to build and sell, or it might be a block of apartments where every unit counts. So if there's a unit, they don't really care about where the bathroom goes or how much uh, wardrobe or, or storage space there is in each unit. So it really depends on who the client is too. In terms of current constraints in the council approvals process, I mean, we're constantly experiencing quite a extensive level of delay. What would you say that's sort of started to come about from? Well, lack of resources that council have. Um, they don't have enough staff. So often they have to outsource it to other private town planners to help with, with their overflow of DAs, as well as the, the quality of the DA. There might be something critically lacking in the DA. There might be a stormwater plan that's incorrect, that hasn't been done properly, that, that holds up the whole DA because the DAs is not just being assessed by one person and council goes to multiple departments. And if there's a delay in, in the engineers or the tree officer, then that Ultimately, that affects the whole process. It's not just for that project either, is it? No. No, I worked in a particular council where they had one stormwater engineer, the whole council. And if he went on leave, nothing happened. His desk is piled up. And then it's just when you get around to it, isn't it? So actually, that was something that I wanted to unpack a little more is is working with councils. It's probably one of the more stressful parts of a a development process. It can be quite laborsome, but it can also be quite positive. Often found it's who you get. And who yep. you work with has a market difference to mm. your experience with dealing with councils. So you mentioned there's a whole group of departments that work to assess a particular DA. Is that the way that that's the way that they, they operate at the back end? Because a lot of people don't get to see it beyond the front desk. You have to they have teams of people that Yeah, they call them referrals. So you lodge your DA for a dual occupancy or a block of apartments. It goes to different departments within council. Sometimes it even has to go to external bodies like the state sorry like the heritage office the rms or the road because you're doing something with roads or so you've got the internal referrals so there's one i guess that's called the case manager who's the da officer the council town planner and they're waiting for all these referrals to come in the stormwater is in so they tick a box the da wants to remove a tree can they remove the tree or not the arborist says no okay so they have to the council office has to tell the, the applicant you can't remove that tree so there's a lot behind the scenes that people don't know about perhaps council should be more upfront with with how the the process is going and and explaining to people that this is why it's taking so long because we have one storm one energy for the whole council or because of covid we've got staff off or whatever the case may be yeah because you often don't you, you don't get that and it's only ever in i mean it has to be in writing but there's very little explanation as to why something's happened mm-hmm. so you end up feeling i guess quite frustrated in in many regards because you don't understand how the decision's been well well that's right yeah. and we have a project in in a particular council which had to involve the police because the, the council had to um, refer this DA to the police. And the council have told us, well, the police are saying no. So the last communication I had with council was, can you please send us that referral from the police? We'd like to know why the police are saying no. <laughs> I'm sure we'll get it eventually. You need to know what, what goes on behind the scenes with council. There's, there's actually quite a lot. Even for a granny flat or a carport, even small projects, there's actually quite a lot that has to the council have to look at. So it's the same uh, arborist that's looking at a DA for 
a house or a block of apartments that's involving a lot of removing a lot of trees or might be in a like a sensitive area where they might have koalas in the trees or something so it's a, that same arborist or council tree officer is looking at a variety of DAs. topologies yeah how would you say COVID has affected the way councils operate these days there was once upon a time where you could actually turn up to council and talk yeah. with people face to face which i found to be probably the best way to, yep. to operate these days that doesn't happen for various reasons working from home but i'm not sure is there anything else that's triggering the fact that you can't actually talk to people face to face these it's days it's hard and yeah. in planning and design and architecture it's a very visual thing so not being able to sit at a boardroom table with a set of plans and scribbling over it with somebody with council is very difficult so that's i think part of the reason why there's a few more delays now because you're going back and forth until we are, are we on the same page or not so you're missing that face-to-face interaction, but on the flip side, sometimes it can be a very quick conversation that can be resolved quite easily through an email or something. So it has its pros and cons, COVID, really. Uh, but that, that's, I think, the main thing that I'm, I'm personally missing, where you have um, meetings with council to discuss issues, and also you've got your client there too. So they can clients got the opportunity also to hear what council's saying and for them to interject and say well hang on that doesn't make sense or why why can't you give me more floor space joe below has got more floor space down the road so it is an opportunity for us as the applicants to be able to have that interaction but on the same time as you know councils are not having meetings like they used to they'll say well we've got a 15 minute time slot will fit you in and it'll literally be a 15 minute time slot if you can even get a meeting. Even before COVID, it was it was challenging to have a meeting with council. That's right, which is, it seems at odds because property development, town planning, architecture, it's, a, it's such a collaborative sort of process. And given council is a, a major stakeholder in the, in the process, having that disconnect is, it doesn't seem that right to me. Oh, it never has seemed that right, but mm. um, you can't really change that one, but <laughs> at least for the time no. being. I guess that... Brings us to a phase of a project which you actually do end up getting face to face, which is go to court. Mm-hmm. So if DAs take too long, an applicant can make an application to the court system. Yep. You've had a bit of experience in, mm-hmm. in that these days, haven't you? In t- so what are some of the, the benefits and drawbacks of going down that particular pathway if you're going to pursue an approval? Well, as we were saying, sometimes councils make it impossible to meet them or even pick up the phone. If you lodge an appeal in the Land Environment Court, they have to talk to you. They have to meet with you, have a mediation, even though it might be on Zoom. So in a way, you force them to, to talk to you. At the same time, also, if you're not getting traction on your, your DA, like it might be someone away, they've got on holiday, or someone left council, being the, your DA is now be looking after by somebody else. Like, you know, those things that are totally out of your control. In those cases, you can lodge the appeal to try and get your DA approved quicker. So yeah, there's pros and cons of taking a project to court. So faster approval, um, usually, uh, but obviously there's costs associated with going to court. But on the flip side, if you if your land is sitting vacant for 12 to 18 months doing nothing, might, might be in the new release area, no, not even you're not even getting rent, collecting rent from the property. That's a real problem. Whereas uh, if you go take it to court, you can get an approval for dual lock or childcare or a block of apartments on that land within, let's say, six to twelve months through court. Is released, yeah. yeah. So the value uplift is sure. probably commensurate, and you've got a holding cost. So that all adds up. I, I guess one of the benefits is that they, you physically do then talk to council, do you? Yeah, and, yeah. And they have to talk to you and there's prescribed timeframes by the court that everyone has to adhere to. Whereas if the DA sits with the council, 
could be in there six months, 12 months, 18 months. They don't really need to get it off their desk if they don't have to. You're sort of beholden to, mm. well, they are beholden to no one. Incredibly frustrating, I guess, mm-hmm. in many ways. Um, well, yeah, it's, it's frustrating to you as well as your clients. No one wants to build their dream home or block of apartments or childcare, whatever it is. Yeah, they're just saying, well, why isn't this person returning my calls or why haven't we heard anything back? We sent them amended plans a month ago what's going on as a town planner is there a particular system or policy that you think it most widely contributes to positive urban change i would say more kpis kpis for council to more accountability in terms of not just the decision making process but the the time frames and transparency with decisions i think that i think that the industry would would welcome that type of idea significantly you know, in any business organization, there's KPIs, you know, you have to get so many sales a month or whatever it is. So I, I think the same rationale could be applied to councils too. Uh, Ellie, thank <laughs> you uh, so much for being with me today and look forward to sharing this one. No problem. Thank you. This is the end of the episode. I hope you've enjoyed listening to Ellie's journey building Navon and also his insights into the various workings in the disciplines of town planning. To put it lightly, the New South Wales planning system is a complicated beast. You only have to look at the legislation surrounding SEPs and the fact that every local government area has its own set of constraints and opportunities. There are a thousand and one things to stay on top of that can potentially derail your plans or even open up possibilities you didn't even know were available to you. As is always the case, but particularly in the high-risk game of property development, having a quality town planner is an invaluable asset to the project and process. Ellie, thanks again for being part of this podcast and for sharing your insights and experiences. Well, that's it from me for this month. I'd like to thank you, my listener, for tuning in, and I look forward to sharing the next month's episode with you very shortly. Bye for now. Thanks for listening to Business and Property Development. Join us next month for more insights from people whose business is property. To subscribe and listen to other episodes, head over to businessandpropertydevelopment.com.au.